Pastor Mark is in Chattanooga today. Uh, his son turned 21 today, and so he and uh, Sherry are down visiting with his son to celebrate his birthday. And uh, I am very, very grateful that uh, I am not preaching this morning, and that uh, you, sh you should be too, and that uh, Paul Chihamba is going to bring us God's word this morning. Paul is an elder. He is ordained uh, Presbyterian pastor that we get to have living in our midst is this uh, hidden resource that we don't always get to tap. So glad that he's here to bring us God's word. Thanks, Paul. Well, good morning, friends. Um, as we continue in our series, the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be reading from the 14th chapter. So um, pray with me as we begin this, this series, this sermon. God, we pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing unto you, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found again that they were sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hand of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant on, of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the courts of the temple, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You know, so there's something about the accounts that we have of the Gospels that, that strikes me sort of as counterintuitive. And particularly as it shows up in the text that we just read here. After Jesus' resurrection, his closest followers who would become the leaders of movements and would go on to start new church communities... 
Peter, James, John, and so on. Here's what sticks out to me. When you read and think about the portrayal of these 12 in the story itself, they're highlighted and they're emphasized in bright colors as absolute failures. Absolute failures in following Jesus. Have you noticed that before? How would you like your name attached to a story that portrays you as, as a bumbling idiot? You're trying to forward a movement through, through these very documents and, and that you have your name attached to and, and they portray you as not so bright. I mean, in a culture, leaders promote themselves, right, by doing what? By maximizing their strengths, by minimizing or hiding their failures as much as possible. I mean, we all have strengths and weaknesses, right? I mean, just for fun, I want you to, to just make a mental list of all of the assets, maybe one or two assets that you have that, that might benefit the community. Okay, you got that? Now, we all have challenges as well, right? As humans, we have deficits, limitations. It could be something like jealousy or impatience, bad at details. For me, it's maybe punctuality. Now, which of these lists is true? They're both true. But we define ourselves by our assets, right? When you're writing a resume, do you say, well, here's some of the things I'm bad at. You know, or if you're, uh, if you're um, wanting to put together a contract, you put together a bid with similar projects. And no one says that you've lied by not adding your deficits. We laugh about this because we, we never would define ourselves by our deficits. In civil society, exchange is always based on our assets, and with the history of Christianity, it's exactly the opposite. From the very beginning, this, this is a movement that highlighted the failures of its leaders. Not the failure of Jesus, the failure of the people who led the movement of people trying to follow Jesus. And the story that, that we're going to be reflecting on today is the pinnacle story of the failure of the leaders of the Jesus movement. And I want you just to hold that idea because it's extremely important and I think uh, it has big, big implications uh, for us as disciples of Jesus, as a community of his disciples. It says something about us. It says something about what we're doing right now and what this is, the church. But, but also at the same time, it says something about Jesus. Now, a few verses prior to the ones that I just read, uh, where, you know, this is the last night before the cross, and, and you had the Last Supper, last Passover meal. Uh, it's uh, on that evening that Jesus tells uh, them that it's going to be a rough night. You know, by the end of the night, one of them will have betrayed him. Um, all of them will have abandoned him. It's kind of a downer of a talk, really. They finish the last Passover meal uh, where or he's trying to tell them, basically, I'm going to die. And with Peter taking the lead, they all declare their unending loyalty to Jesus. Like, you know, this is not going to happen on our watch. They have no idea, right? So that sets up the text that, we're, that we read this morning. Uh, and where do we go from here? Jesus went to his disciples, with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And uh, so they get to Gethsemane, and here's what he says to them, to the 12. He says, okay, guys, I want you to sit here by this tree, and, and, and I'm going to go over there to that tree, and I'm going to pray. He, he's done this before, you know, after really intense moments. Um, you know, we've seen this multiple times where, where something really intense happens, and he retreats 
usually uh, with uh, some of his closest followers, and he goes for a day or two and, and prays. And so he just said, okay, I want you guys to just sit here. And then he takes so long, and so he picks out, uh, you know, who? Who does he pick out, especially? Peter, right? Chest thumper Peter, right? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These are the, the three fishermen that he recruited at the very beginning of this movement. And so he's taken these three along on a, you know, a number of, of, uh, of occasions. Um, so these are like his, his safe, safe, safe friends, right? The, 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 the ones that he's closest to. Um, and so together they, they go to another tree and um, he begins to be deeply distressed. You know, some of the translations use words sorrowful or agitated. Uh, these are words that are familiar with us, I'm sure. You know, my hunch is that, that those words may have been used by some of you even this week. You know, stress is, is for sure a word that, that often comes to, to my lips um, these days. Our, our culture is obsessed with it. Distress, agitation. Uh, I think to put it in its most blunt form, bluntly, in light of what happens, Jesus um, breaks right here, right? He's having what would be described today as a panic attack. I'm not joking. He, he, he's sorrowful. He's agitated. He's, he's distressed. And, and, and he says to the three of them in private, he says, my soul is, is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I just need you guys to stay right here with me and just be with me. Watch with me. Just stay awake and be here with me. We've seen Jesus up to this point in every story thus far. He's, he's, he's been the rock, right? Uh, you know, he's confident. He's, he's calm. We've seen Jesus get angry. We've seen Jesus full of joy. We've seen Jesus full of compassion. But he always had composure, and this is the first moment in the story where it seems like he's falling apart. He, he just absolutely crumbles. It, it's the middle of the night and he's with his safest circle of friends and it appears that he's unglued. I mean, just imagine. I don't know if you have a memory of the first time that you saw maybe, maybe one of your parents break. For me, I remember I was like eight or nine years old, I remember, you know, you, you know, you, you have this perception, if your parents were there for you, is, is that they're like the stability of the universe for you, right? Or, or, or you had someone in your life, I hope, who represented that. And then to watch that person break and to watch them weep and to, to be in, in a fetal position, I mean, that's really intense. And for many of us, if you're a disciple of Jesus... Jesus is, is stability in the universe for us, right? And here he is. He's seemingly falling apart, falling in pieces. And what's remarkable is that he's actually so agitated. He's so crushed under the weight of what's about to happen. When he tries to verbalize what he's feeling, he doesn't even use his own words. I don't know if you, you have a footnote where in the Bible that you're reading, but you know, when he says, my soul is overwhelmed to sorrow to the point of death, he's speaking from, from the psalm that we, we just read there, Psalm 42, which reads, you know, I thank 
I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about grieving, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony, as my foes taunt me. They're saying to me all day long, where's your God? Why, oh my soul, are you so overwhelmed with sorrow? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's, it's remarkable because, because you get a look at the arc of the poem itself, this movement of the poem. The, the poet is unglued, right? Uh, he's being made fun of. He's, he's afraid for his life. He's, he has enemies, and they're making fun of him. And then he enters this stage of, of self-talk. And, you know, talking to himself like, like, why? Why, oh, my soul, my being, why are you becoming so unglued? Like, put your hope in God. But, but that doesn't, for one second, negate all of the emotions and the feelings that he has. Are you with me? This is like, this is about the journey of working through the confusion, the fear, the suffering. And these are the words that come to Jesus' mouth when he tries to verbalize what he's feeling. He doesn't want his disciples to do anything except stay awake and to be with him. His point is like, don't go anywhere. I, I just need you to stay awake with me. And then, then he went a little farther, verse 35, and he fell with his face to the ground. I, I don't know if you've ever done that. My hunch is that, that some of us here have felt like that before, like we needed to do that. It's, it's the sign of somebody whose body gives out because of the fear and the grief. And Jesus falls to his face and he prays, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you recognize elements of this prayer? My Father, your will be done. Have you heard those words before? It's the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, isn't it? Which, which we'll be praying together later in this service. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come Will your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. What is Jesus doing right here? He's, Jesus is in his darkest moment of his life. And what's happening? He's having a panic attack. And he doesn't even know what he needs. He, he just needs his closest friends to be with him. He doesn't even know what to say. So the words that he grew up on from the Psalms are the words that he draws upon. And then when he finally does verbalize it, what does he verbalize? He verbalizes the words from the prayer that he taught us to pray. And this is the part that really blows my mind. Because when you go back and you realize that that prayer that he gave us, it's not that he was lecturing us, now this is how you're supposed to pray. He gave us his prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. This is Jesus's prayer. It's the prayer that he went to in his dark moment of wondering, like, what's happening? Who am I and what am I supposed to be doing right now? And this prayer became his sense of stability. These are the words that he used to give him guidance as he processed through his emotion. Now, is it news to Jesus that he's going to die? No. 
I mean, he's been saying it over and over again in several different ways. He's been talking about it, and his closest friends have not been understanding it. But this is not news to Jesus. He's not learning a new fact about God's will. What he's doing, he's, he's human. You know the historic confession that we have? You know, that, that Jesus is God become human? We just read that, right? But he's human. And, and, and we're watching Jesus a human. We're watching his emotions unravel and, and his will and his emotion are catching up to his brain right now. He's not learning a new fact about God's will. He's coming to terms with his whole person and this strange and difficult calling and vocation as the messianic king. And that somehow he's going to save and to rescue but by himself not being rescued and by being killed brutally. And it's a calling that he doesn't want at this moment. He just says it straight up, you know. Father, I know you love me. You, you said it at my baptism. And it's, if it's possible, is there any other way here? You know, for a while now, I've been saying to everybody that I have to die, but maybe we could figure something else out right now. And that's what he wants. He says, it's what I want. Could this happen a different way? I don't want to drink this cup, he says. And so here we go once again. Jesus is raised on the scriptures. And, and when he talks, he speaks the language of scripture. The Old Testament prophets often use metaphors to describe God's relationship to his people. And one of those, the most significant common ones, is this image of, of a cup of God's justice, a cup of God's wrath. Paul the Apostle put, it puts words to it without using that same image. He describes it in Romans 1. He says, it's the wrath of God, which, which he describes as God giving people over to their consequences, the consequences of the things that they choose. And what we choose are the things that destroy us, the things aren't, that aren't good for us. So that's the image that, that Jesus uses right here, that there is a cup of God's justice that's meant to be poured out on God's people for their their centuries or even more of, uh, of rejection and rebellion and moral corruption and injustice. And so Jesus, as Israel's king, it's his calling to drink the cup on behalf of his people so that they don't have to. And so Jesus, in the garden, reckons with this. He, he's like, I don't want to drink the cup. These people don't like me. They've rejected me. The Pharisees hate me, most of them. I, I don't... I, I'm over it right now. I don't want to do this for them. That's how he feels, okay? And then watch. He moves on the same journey as the poem that he quotes from. But then he comes around the bend and he says, yes, what I want is to not do this. But then he reminds himself with the words of his own prayer that he taught us, but this is not about what I want. My life is not about what I want. I find myself caught up in this story of what God is doing and his will and his purpose. And so here's what I want, Father. I entrust what I want to what you want. And he lays it right there. And you just imagine having to go through all that, right? This is an hour. He's on his face, crying, weeping. And he gets up and he walks over to the tree and he returns to his disciples. And what are they doing? 
couldn't you guys just stay awake for me with me for one hour? Peter, wake up. You need to be on your face too because tonight's going to be your trial as well. Tonight, your dark night of the soul is about to happen in a few hours and you're asleep. You need to be praying too so that you don't fall into temptation using again the words of his prayer again. The spirit is willing, Peter, but the flesh is weak. But even if everyone abandons you tonight, Jesus, not me, that's what Peter says. We're told Jesus went away a second time back on his face again. He prays, my father, if it's not possible for the cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Was that the same prayer that he prayed before? Was it the same prayer as the first time? It's a little different, isn't it? Did you see the difference? Look at the difference here. The first time, it's all like, you know, if it's possible, I don't want this. Please take it away from me. Not what I want, but what you want. But here's what I want. And now, do you see the second one? The second prayer? It's not possible for me to avoid this, is it? Okay, may your will be done. You can see this. He's beginning to reckon with his emotions. He's reckoning with his calling, and he's coming to terms with it. And he doesn't think that it's because God the Father doesn't love him. He still calls him Father. He's recognizing that he's being called to live up, out the upside-down kingdom that he's been talking about all this time. So he comes back again, and he finds Peter and the others. Their eyes are heavy, and you know they're sleeping and all of that. So he left them and went to pray another time. He prayed a third time and said all the same stuff. He says, look at this. This is Jesus here, right? This is calm, confident Jesus, who's the stability of the universe. And this is his dark night of the soul. He's a broken man. He's facing the human condition. He's facing his existence as a whole human. And he's not learning anything new. His emotions are catching up to his brain. There's the Jesus who gives his life for us. There's the Jesus who victoriously conquers death and sin on our behalf. There's the Jesus that comes to be personally present with all of his followers at Pentecost in the, in the spirit. But then there's this Jesus. This is the, the weak, frail Jesus who meets his greatest moment of fear and confusion and pain. And some of you might know these nights, right? And to me... That unbelievable power of the story is that Jesus, you know, our conviction is that he's God become human and God joins us in our dark nights of the soul. God joins us in this moment in Jesus, in these moments where uh, you, your world is unraveling, your prayers hit the ceiling, you're, you're convinced that nobody's listening, no one cares, and everybody in your life is asleep on you. Do you hear that? Jesus is no stranger to the utter fear and pain of the human condition. He knows it. And I'd wager to say that he actually knows it to a degree and a depth that few of us ever will. And this is also Jesus, isn't it? He knows you. And he knows your story. And he's been there. He moves through it. Everybody fails him. But Jesus doesn't fail. Because, look, he emerges out of the garden. Look at, his, at this Jesus that emerges from the prayer, he went back to his disciples, still sleeping. 
And he says, are you still sleeping, resting? The hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go meet the moment. Here comes Judas. And it's calm, confident, resolute Jesus again, which doesn't mean that he doesn't have moments of doubt and struggle. It's somehow precisely those moments, through those moments, that he becomes calm and confident once more. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appears, as the scripture tells us. And he kisses Jesus. You know, the point here, you know, it's dark. It's not Hollywood. There are no light, bright lights in the garden spotlighting anything. It's so dark, still coming to arrest one person in a group of 13 in the garden. And so Judas arranges the signal so that they know which one to pick. And look at Jesus' last words to Judas. Friend, do what you came here for. Then the men step forward, seize Jesus, arrested him. And then now when that happened, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. And of course, we know who that is. Mark doesn't tell us who it is, but, but John tells us that it's Peter, of course. <laughs> who else? For Peter, it's one mishap after another. Again, we fast forward. The same Peter is the one, one of the most important leaders of the early church. He visits, you know, just imagine this. Peter visits your city, visits your brand new church, and then this story is read about him. And he gets up to speak, and you know, you're like, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, why would I listen to you, right? And that is precisely the point. That is the story presented by the, of, of the leaders of the early Christian movement. Absolute failures. Jesus is living the Sermon on the Mount right here. And Peter betrays him yet again by doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus has been teaching his followers to do. He says, listen, you chop that guy's head off. You contribute and participate in the spiral of violence that breeds more hatred and revenge and violence. And the kingdom of God just cuts right through that stuff. And it stops with the kingdom of God. And it stops here in this movement of the kingdom of God confronting and exposing evil for what it is. Then Jesus addresses the crowd. So you've come here with swords and clubs to, to capture me like a terrorist, like, like a leader of a rebellion. You know, I've, I've been here every day, you know, week in, week out, teaching in the temple courts, love God, love your neighbor. And, and here you come and arrest me like this? You know, this is like the first time, this is the last time that Jesus speaks up for himself. And really, it's, it's not even to defend himself. It's just to expose the absurdity of what's happening. And look at the last line of that scene. What do the disciples do? They all, every one of them, desert him. The story begins with all of them saying, no, we're with you, Jesus, to the bitter end. We got your back. You can count on us. The whole story culminates in all of them doing exactly the opposite. They betray Jesus by their apathy and their inaction. They betray Jesus by the actions they do take, and they eventually just betray and abandon him altogether. So they run away. They flee for their own lives. It's an un unbelievable story. Try to think of a religious movement, again, a political movement, whatever, that has as part of its foundation documents portraying the absolute failures and lack of integrity of the most important leaders 
The point isn't just to be down on them. They're, they're going to grow and get better at following Jesus, and, and, and they, they go on to do incredible things, but there's something about camping out and highlighting this paradox of utter failure of Jesus' disciples contrasted, contrasted with Jesus. He, he comes out as strong and consistent and confident as he's been, but he does it precisely through this total moment of brokenness and weakness. Jesus is different. He's a human, and he knows pain, and he knows grief, and he's overtaken by his emotions, and he doesn't want to have to do what he needs, knows needs to be done for us. But there's something driving him. And, and we look at him. Uh, uh, Jesus is stability in the universe for us. It's his love. It's his absolute confidence in the Father's love and commitment to him. But even through the horror of drinking the cup that will kill him. He trusts with all of his being that, that death won't be the final word. And, and that, he's, uh, he's going to meet up again in, in Galilee with, with these same failures. Huh? He, he's going to reboot the story and try again. This is exactly what happens. So what did that mean for us? What does it mean for us to have a time where we pray and worship together and, and break bread and drink from the cup? Well, two things come to mind, two contrasting portraits of Jesus as the rock that shatters and then gets put back together again, and then the leaders of the early Christian movement being highlighted as failures. There's, there's a comfort and a realism. You, you, there's hundreds of thousands of communities this morning of followers of Jesus gathering today all over the planet, billions of people, and like what are we doing? What, are, what, what do we think that we are? Who do we think we are? And we're setting ourselves up for huge um, shattered expectations if, we, if our faith and our hope is in us. The local church is a sacred and vital part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's possible to actually grow and mature as a follower of Jesus without committing yourself to a local community of, of fellow followers and disciples, people committing themselves to you, you committing yourself to them. But at the same time, this movement is not called churchianity, right? I mean, you're not a churchian. Uh, you're a follower of Jesus. And, and we're part of this movement of Jesus' spirit and people. And, and so there's something really important for us to recognize here. It's absolutely vital that we go to the garden together and that we open up our failures and allow our failures to be exposed and to be challenged by each other so that we can grow. And we should probably see a pattern of less failure and less betrayal of Jesus as time goes on. I think we should be optimistic and pray and hope for that so that Jesus' spirit will do that in us. But at the end of the day, my hope is that is not in you and your hope is not in me because I'm like Peter. And so are you. And, and I'm like Mark, and, and so are you. At our best, Jesus' uh, followers sometimes get it right. And that's not a scandal. It's actually so important, a part of who we are as followers of Jesus. Let's write that story into our foundation documents. You know what I'm saying? This is Remarkable that Paul the Apostle, the most successful church planter of the first decades of the church, near the end of his life, he, what does he say? He says, at the end of the day, 
I am the worst sinner you've ever met. You know, he calls himself the chief of sinners. And that's near the end of his glorious ministry, right? Whole journey of being faithful to Jesus. And he's like, yeah, I'm not that great of a guy. And that's unique. That's unique to the Jesus movement. And, and we're close to the heartbeat of this thing here. That this isn't about self-loathing or hating ourselves or whatever, but it's recognizing we're a community of, of weak, of the weak, and that we're a community that creates space to fail so that we can grow together. Why did Jesus do this? Because he loves us. Because he loves me and he loves you. And because he knows that the Father loves him. And because he knows that the Father loves us and the world. So I don't know what you need to hear from this this morning. Maybe there's a failure you need to bring to Jesus. When we take the bread and the cup, you need to come like Peter is going to come, you know, after this all goes down. Come with repentance and humility, knowing that Jesus will embrace you. Some of us might have other things that we need to work through. Some of us might just simply need to know that you are kneeling alongside Jesus as you go through your dark night of the soul. This story is unbelievable, and I trust that the Spirit will take it and bury it deep in our minds, our hearts, as we go from here today. Let's pray. God, we come to you empty-handed. Whom have we but you? You are our strength, our rock, our model for what it means to trust in God. And so we offer our lives to you and trust that you will continue to do your work in us. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, please rise. We offer all that he has offered The perfect offering Christ is the life of the world Christ is the life of the world
say.